This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Wednesday, May 15th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Alabama is at the forefront of a backslide on abortion rights. In Georgia, they're not allowing abortion after six weeks or so when a fetal heartbeat is detected. Fetal heartbeat, a term scientists seriously question. But in Alabama, the design, the very design, was to just overturn Roe versus Wade. That is what the bill's sponsor, Terry Collins, explicitly says, quote, this bill is about challenging Roe versus Wade and protecting the lives of the unborn because an unborn baby is a person who deserves love and protection. That is a tautology. But, whoa, the joke is on Representative Terry Collins because the last two gentlemen who were installed on the Supreme Court, now I don't know if you know this, they both told U.S. senators that they really, really respected Roe versus Wade. Senator, I um, said that it's settled as a precedent of the Supreme Court entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis. And one of the important things to keep in mind about Roe v. Wade is that it has been reaffirmed many times over the past uh, 45 years. That was Brett Kavanaugh. And when Neil Gorsuch was interviewed for his place on the court. He was also asked about Roe versus Wade. It is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992 and in several other cases. So a good judge will consider it as precedent of the United States Supreme Court, worthy as treatment of precedent like any other. And then Gorsuch went on to compliment the heck out of the very idea of precedent. Gorsuch loves precedent, saying... It's part of the reason why the rule of law in this country works so well. We have statutes, we have rules, we have a fact-finding process and a judicial system that's the envy of the world. And precedent is a key part of that. Gorsuch also got pretty righteous when it was suggested that he even had an opinion on Roe versus Wade. Had you ever met President Trump personally? Not until my interview. In that interview, did he ever ask you to overrule Roe v. Wade? No, Senator. What would he have done if he if he had asked? Senator, I would have walked out the door. And there is further egg on the face of Representative Terry Collins, who hates an unwanted fertilized egg in the womb. Her somewhat namesake, Senator Susan Collins, U.S. Senator Susan Collins, voted for Brett Kavanaugh because he gave assurances as she told Dana Bash on CNN. How can you be or are you 100% certain, without a doubt, that Brett Kavanaugh will not overturn Roe v. Wade? I do not believe that Brett Kavanaugh will overturn Roe v. Wade. precedents are overturned all the time. So you got to ask, what are they possibly thinking in Alabama and Georgia? Do they know something we don't know? Have they not heard that the now justices on the Supreme Court gave really super clear indications that they absolutely respect the law and wouldn't overturn precedent without a very good reason. See, I just don't get why the legislatures of Georgia, Alabama, but also Mississippi, Kentucky, and Ohio, I don't get what they're seeing. I don't get what every anti-abortion senator who voted for Gorsuch and Kavanaugh was seeing. And by the way, that is to say every anti-abortion senators. What were they thinking? These two guys gave 
assurances. The hearings were very useful. They were very formal. Bibles were sworn upon. People wore really good suits. It was all on television. It's almost as if all these entities, all these states, all these anti-abortion senators, it's almost as if they're treating all the assurances given by very respected judges in front of the whole country. It's as if they were treating all that as if it were only a highly orchestrated fiction. Hmm. I do look forward to seeing this get to the court and watching our very solemn and consistent new justices joining with all the other precedent worshipers to have a precedent fest for the ages. How could anything other than that possibly happen? I mean, there isn't any precedent. On the show today, I spiel about British economic bumbling leading to an unemployment rate that is a total unmitigated cluster hug. Cluster high fives all around. Hmm. I thought a low unemployment rate was evidence of wise policies, and yet the British don't have them. What does that say about the United States? I will investigate, but first, Chuck Rosenberg is a former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. There, he followed the law. He still does, and you could follow him following the law frequently on MSNBC and on his new podcast called The Oath. Chuck and I talk about the Mueller report and the possibilities of impeachment. He is a serious man, and these are serious times, and oaths are serious things. So let us strap in for some serious discussion about the serious consequences of our seriously bananas moment. If you know Chuck Rosenberg, it's probably from his appearances on MSNBC, where he plays this Demosthenes-type character who is called upon to issue pronouncements of right and wrong, but actually he provides a service, because when he sighs, we all sigh at what's going on with the rule of law at the highest reaches of government. Rosenberg is a former U.S. attorney. He has a new podcast out with MSNBC called The Oath. And the idea is he took an oath. His guests have taken an oath. And they're not to a person. They're not to a party. They're to a country. Thanks for joining me, Chuck. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. I want to start in our interview. Let us start with the Mueller report. Let us expand it out to government service and uh, the podcast. And then I want to ask you a bunch of specific questions about maybe specific cases and we could get as detailed as you care to get. So my first question is about the Mueller report. And it is, do you think that he should have subpoenaed Donald Trump? You know, that's a great question. So he gives two reasons, Mike, for not subpoenaing the president. One is that he says at the end of his report that he can infer intent, the president's intent, from a whole bunch of other evidence, what other witnesses told him, circumstantial evidence. And that makes some sense to me, um, but not complete sense to me. And then the second reason that Bob Mueller uh, gives for not issuing a subpoena to the president uh, is that he feared it would take a long time, that it would be litigated, they had already invested 22 months in the investigation uh, and that it would just drag it out unnecessarily. So they settled on uh, uh, responses to written questions. But I can tell you 
as a former federal prosecutor, that's pretty uh, unsatisfying, typically. Of course it's unsatisfying. But then again, as a former federal prosecutor, I am pretty certain you never... Uh, subpoenaed someone who not only had Fifth Amendment protections, which is everyone, and didn't have a rule that they can't be charged with a crime. Right. Uh, You're right. So the president cannot be charged with a crime pursuant to Department of Justice policy, but the grand jury is entitled to every person's evidence. And so putting aside a Fifth Amendment privilege, uh, which pertains to all citizens, uh, the grand jury could have heard from the president. They just couldn't have charged him while he's in office. I want to ask you about the uh, first plank of the reasons why you think Mueller didn't subpoena, and it was your assertion that he thought he could infer from the available evidence and the investigation he did what the president's intent was. Well, if he was sure of that, would it stand to reason that he would think all readers of the report would be able to infer the president's intent? And then would it be further... Would it further stand to reason that what he's saying is the intent is there and therefore have at it as far as an impeachment proceeding? So let me try and unpack that a bit. Um, First, Mueller says in his report, in writing, that there was sufficient evidence short of the president's testimony that enabled him to infer what was in the president's mind, what the president was thinking and why he did the things he did. That's hard to do, but it's not impossible. And it's important for your listeners to know that very often in our prosecutions, we don't get to talk to the person we want to talk to uh, because the person has invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege not to talk to us. Uh, So not all that unusual, but whenever we can talk to somebody, we want to, even if they're going to lie to us. And that might sound weird, but let me explain that. A lot of times you can um, sort of, box in your case by knowing what the false alternative explanations are. So, Mike, knowing that, um, you know, if we think you robbed a bank and you come in and you tell us all the places that you were that night or that day, uh, and we can disprove that, that's also helpful to our investigation. So having someone testify truthfully is what we want, uh, but if they testify falsely, It's also helpful to an investigation. A day or two after the report came out, you were on a panel uh, hosted by Lawfare, or at least I heard it. It was a Brookings Institution panel. I heard it on the Lawfare podcast, which I recommend everyone listen to. And Ben Wittes uh, raised a point, and he didn't let you, there wasn't enough time to respond, but I want to get your take on what what he said. And what Ben said was that he, the thing he would most like to know from Mueller is, Ben said that uh, he assumes that Mueller would say, I pursued my investigation as fully as I could given the constraints of the law. And Ben would be interested to know if Mueller would say, but the law constrained me and except for those constraints, I would have liked to have gone further. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? You know Mueller for a while, you worked with him and I believe for him, but you could correct me on that. Do you have any sense of what Mueller might say um, if asked, were the constraints, were the rules of the special counsel or any other rules an impediment to getting at the full truth? Yeah. Well, first, Mike, I did work for Bob Mueller. Uh, when he was director of the FBI, I served as his counsel. And I've told people, because it's true, it was one of the great uh, professional privileges of my life. Uh, 
I think the world of that man, uh, tremendous integrity. Um, and it was a, I don't know if the right word is pleasure because we worked so hard, but it certainly was a privilege to work for him. Second, my sense, having read his 448-page report, is that he was not constrained in his investigation. He was constrained in his ability to charge. It seems pretty clear to me, particularly if you read volume two of the Mueller report, which focuses on obstruction of justice, uh, that the president, who Mueller states in the report was a subject of the investigation, committed obstruction of justice. So the constraint was not in uh, developing the facts uh, and seeing the patterns and talking to the witnesses around the president and reviewing documents. The constraint was pursuant to Department of Justice policy, you can't charge a sitting president. So tell me why you wanted to do the oath other than catching up with old friends or professional colleagues. Oh, you bet. So I love the work that I get to do on MSNBC, but it does not afford a lot of time and a lot of space to talk about difficult issues in long form, right? Some of the things that we're talking about here today lend themselves better to a podcast format than to a television format. Whether you're talking about FISA warrants or grand jury subpoenas or perjury traps or the assertion of the Fifth Amendment, right? This is all really important stuff. Uh, But on television, sometimes you only have a minute or two to try and convey complex ideas uh, in ways that people will readily understand it. But some people want to go deeper and further. And so I thought if I could find some really fascinating people that I know and I like and I trust, and they'll have those conversations with me, others could benefit from it. I think I heard you say this. It might have been the conversation with Jim Comey or the conversation with Preet Bharara, but you've definitely said that this is a time when you and those in your profession or who were are sensing that they're under assault a bit from, clearly, from the highest reaches of government who are trying to, you know, cut the legs out from under the rule of law itself. But I have a question about that. It does seem like there are these cultural cross-currents. And at the same time, That is true that I kind of can't believe how our president denigrates the law enforcement community. While that is also true, I am seeing many people rally to the law enforcement community or to the idea of able prosecutors carrying out the law. And many of those people rallying to it are the same people who are very critical of things like over-policing and prison overcrowding and, you know, the progressive uh, take on law enforcement in general. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I think I saw one segment on MSNBC where you were on and they uh, deferred to you and your expertise. And one of the, if not explicit, then implicit messages was, you know, the president is what the president is doing poses a long-term threat in terms of belief in our institutions. The next segment was criticizing Kamala Harris as being a prosecutor who prosecuted. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on what's going on and roiling us societally on these issues. There seems to be some cross currents. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, human beings are not always consistent in the way we think and talk. But what I was really concerned about more than anything was that the denigration of these institutions that are, you know, fundamentally designed to protect our society, military, intelligence, and law enforcement, 
have come under, as far as I can tell, an unprecedented attack from the President of the United States. I think there are long-term consequences to that. I can give you a couple of examples, but you know, while some have rallied, uh, others have um, moved away. And what does that mean for recruiting the best and the brightest into public service, where the work is fascinating, but it may not pay as much as you can get in the private sector? What does it mean when an FBI agent uh, doing a difficult public corruption case or civil rights investigation knocks on someone's door, uh, hoping that they will talk to them, hoping that they can get the truth to further that investigation, but that people no longer trust the FBI as an institution uh, because this erosion of trust is sort of you know, cascading down upon us from above. Those are long-term consequences. And first, it sort of makes me shudder to think that it's happening before my eyes, but I also worry about how we write that ship. How do we fix that? Uh, how, do we f- how do we ensure that these institutions continue to do the jobs they were intended to do and that they protect us and our society? I don't know. Uh, this is just a supposition, but I think if I were a kid in law school before the Trump administration and I wanted to do something to quote-unquote help society, maybe I'd be driven to go into environmental law or public defense. But during the Trump administration, I might say, you know, where I could have the biggest impact is to work to to work for the government, to work to uh, support the rule of law I guess what I'm saying is maybe there was widespread suspicion of law enforcement beforehand and there's widespread suspicion now. It's just that who's doing the suspecting has changed. Maybe. Fair point. You know, it might be, too, that the winds aren't blowing in one direction. Uh, They're swirling. Yeah. And that this will affect different people in different ways. Uh, It may also be the case that you and I sitting here talking about it and thinking about it right now can't predict what the effect will be. Um, My sense is that it's not a good thing. Does it inspire some people to public service? Probably. Um, Does it push others away? Perhaps. But I don't know that we can see um, what the effects will ultimately be. It just seems jarring and discordant. Is it a problem that prosecutors use the fact that they can charge, they can levy a charge with many, many years in jail they use this at times wantonly to scare defendants or uh, potential defendants into plea deals? Yeah, so I'm going to object to your premise. I don't believe I've ever charged wantonly, and I don't believe I have ever charged in order to scare somebody. I mean, our rules in the Department of Justice is that we bring the appropriate charges under the appropriate circumstances when we have sufficient proof to back them up. Uh, I can't speak for all prosecutors in all jurisdictions. I can tell you how uh, I did my job, and I can tell you when I led the office as U.S. attorney how the men and women uh, in that office did their jobs. Should the attorney general be an executive branch appointment? As opposed to what? Most states don't do it that way. Most, Most countries don't do it that way. Maybe direct election. It does seem to be complicated that the man who is appointed by the man sometimes gets to investigate the man. Yeah, this seems like a very unusual set of circumstances. And, you know, I, I am not sure because we find ourselves in this sort of odd time with these odd um, circumstances that we would, you know, recast the uh, constitutional framework. 
I think it has worked and worked well. Uh, we'll see how we come out on the other end of this thing, because at some point this thing will be over. Uh, but I am not convinced that the attorney general should be outside of the executive branch. Attorneys general have an unusual job because the department has to be both a creature of the executive branch, you know, sensitive to the policy directions of a president, but also fiercely independent from the president in its exercise of its investigative and prosecutive authority. And so good attorneys general uh, know that balance uh, and are able to execute that balance. Uh, in my experience in the Department of Justice, having worked under many different attorneys general, uh, I think they've largely struck that balance. All right, here's my last question. How would, how would you have gone about bringing an emoluments clause case? I wouldn't because I don't know enough about it. Is there an emoluments clause expert out there? It's never been tried. Uh, there's probably an expert on just about everything, but if it's emoluments, it's not me. It's not Chuck Rosenberg, who is the host of the Oath podcast from MSNBC. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. And now the spiel. I'd like to talk for a second about unemployment. Unemployment here, unemployment there. So to get there, I will have to take you there. And the there in question is the United Kingdom. Join me, won't you? As I mentioned, Mr. Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage is a British politician who rang the bell for Brexit. He got it. He gave up the UKIP party when that party's toe touches with right-wing nationalism became an ankle boot of anti-Muslim extremism. But now Nigel's back with a brand new baby. It's just called the Brexit Party, and they're going to. Party, that is. Don't know if they'll Brexit. But the Brexit Party is doing quite well. It is number one in the polls in the upcoming vote for the European parliamentary elections. 34% of Brits say they're voting Brexit. 21 say Labour. Liberal Democrats weigh in at 12% in fourth place, fourth place, the current ruling conservative party. Theresa May of the conservatives has scheduled a vote on Brexit. It will be her fourth. The vote will take place on or around June 3rd. Most experts say it is as sure to fail as all the other votes. Any vote that actually agrees to what the plan on Brexit is, as opposed to just the concept of Brexit, has failed. The result is that it's more likely that Theresa May will be bounced as the head of the conservatives than the conservatives will actually vote for an actual deal. But so be it. Theresa May, in fact, just this entire dalliance with Brexit has so hurt the conservative brand by associating itself with a policy that seems to have no workable solution, that they are now fourth in the hearts of their countrymen and the party that is first because of the conservatives' endorsement of Brexit, the party that is first, that is much more popular than the Brexit-endorsing conservatives, is the Brexit party. It makes no sense. It's as if Trump were outflanked by a party called the Wall and Anti-Immigration Party. Actually, now that I think about it, that is kind of what happened. Mitch McConnell, uh, Paul Ryan, they're, they're kind of anti-immigration. Then Trump comes along, establishes himself as the American Farage, and just rebrands the thing he's doing 
much more explicitly. Now, he is a little like Farage, but there is a difference. Uh, Donald Trump is unable to do what Nigel Farage does, which is to come up with cogently stated objections to challenging questions. You still, you're, not, you're just not interested, right? Do you still feel uncomfortable with foreign languages being spoken today. on trends? Let's talk about democracy. Let's talk about trust. Let's talk about competence in politics. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Ho-ho, Spinderella. Tone it down this time. Remember, I said Farage's Brexit party was polling number one in European parliamentary elections. You realize that if Britain Brexits, what it's Brexiting from, right? The European Union, the legislature of which is the European Parliament. If I had any advice for the European Parliament, it would be do not give the Brexit party the good offices. I don't think they really want to be there. It's one of those situations where accumulating tenure is a true indictment of your legislative ability. I was elected to do one thing. Get the hell out of here. And I'm going to spend 15 years doing it. Not since the term limit party was reelected for the ninth time, or maybe since the Greens were just a runaway locomotive of electoral success, has there been a more confusing election result. Electing the Brexit party to the EU is pretty much like hiring a termite as an architect. Though, having spent some time studying Nigel Farage's media appearances, I think that analogy may be a little insulting to termites. This is absolutely ludicrous. I've never in my life seen a more ridiculous interview than this. You are not prepared to talk about what is going on in this country today. You're in denial. The BBC's in denial. The Tory and Labour parties are in denial. The whole court's in denial! In Britain, things are goofy, wacky, you might say ludicrous. You have a party called Brexit surging in the polls and a process called Brexit that is pretty much impossible. You have Nigel Farage lecturing the BBC on reality. (laughs) And there is even an upcoming by-election, which is a special election, for a seat in Parliament formerly held by Fiona Onasanya, who was jailed for, I love this charge in English criminal law, perverting the course of justice. Fiona Onisanya was a star in the Labour Party, a whip. She said she would like to become the UK's first black prime minister. Instead, she has been tossed from the Labour Party and from office for, like I said, perverting the course of justice. So what was the nature of her perversion? I will tell you, they got her car on a speeding camera. And when the police came a call and she said, it wasn't me. It was uh, this lodger guy who lives in my house. We sometimes give him the car. And, you know, it's a funny thing. Nope, that guy was in Russia at the time. Oh, you know what? It was my brother. He, they, sometimes we get him. Nope. Turns out they have cell phone records of that intersection of her using her phone around the time the speeding was caught on tape. So lying about a speeding offense, tossed out of parliament, special election, that's going on. You got this against the backdrop of Brexit shenanigans, everything Nigel Farage is doing. You got weird new, very single issue parties polling number one in European elections. Look, this is not a country like our country where there are even some people who are claiming that we're winning and that you're getting tired of winning. Everyone is at least decent enough in England to acknowledge that they've screwed it all up. They've bollocked up Brexit. They've scuppered the deal. And you know what? You know how the markets are reacting? I'll tell you. Unemployment is at 3.8%. 3.8%. Wages are rising. It is a workers' market. And what have they done right to get there? They've done almost nothing right. 
Guess what? In the United States, unemployment is 3.6%. It's the lowest since 1969. What has the United States done right? The president claims a lot. And many in the media seem to agree. Unemployment is the lowest it's been since I was nine months old. You're really not going to give President Trump any credit for that in terms of his tax cuts or deregulation or anything he's done? That's Jake Tapper on CNN. He turned 52 months ago. He couldn't believe that his guest, Senator Amy Klobuchar, was so parsimonious in giving credit. Now, I happen to think that the tax cuts did give a sugar high to the economy, but hers is the stronger case. Does Trump get the credit for UK unemployment being at a 35-year low at 3.8%? Does Trump get the credit for Germany's unemployment rate being at 3.2% lower than the US? Unemployment in the EU, on average, is the lowest that has ever been measured since they started measuring in the pre-EU. The world is interconnected. So a healthy U.S. economy helps. But the greater truth is that even against a backdrop of stupid political decisions, decisions that went nowhere, decisions that upset everybody, decisions that we can all agree were not successful, even against that, the business cycle is the business cycle. And the business cycle, by and large, does not care about the small decisions of the policymakers. The big ones, yes. And it's true. You could totally wreck a business cycle with, say, a war or seriously wound a business cycle with a trade war. But in general, we attribute way too much to the leaders of any one country. Way too much credit is given. And that is my point. And that is why I wanted to tell you about the Brexit party and the Peterborough by-election and perversions of justice. It's just to show it is a mistake. In fact, I'll go so far as to say it is perhaps the most fundamental, consistently wrong mistake of attribution that we make in politics. Very fair-minded people who are very smart constantly want to give the president, not, not just this one, but any president, credit for the employment picture. But I really think little credit is due, not just to Donald Trump in general, to presidents who preside over robust labor markets, not just to past U.S. presidents, but to Andrzej Babis, prime minister of the Czech Republic, unemployment 1.9%. Mark Rutte, prime minister of the Netherlands, unemployment 3.3%. Or Theresa May, Prime Minister of the UK, where unemployment is 3.8%, though I do have a feeling that could tick up ever so slightly on or around June 3rd. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They inspire reactions that are biological, but scheme of getting in those genes, which is diabolical. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. No, 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 she really is. Don't be coy, avoid, or make void the topic, because that ain't going to stop it. The gist. Yes, I know, a lot of salt and pepper references today. I suppose I shouldn't push it. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.